Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey, do you need a financial coach? If so, let's work together. As a coach, I help you get structure around your finances, visualize your ideal life, whatever that looks like for you, and more importantly, put together a strategy to help you get there. A lot of people hire me because they want to pay off debt faster and more efficiently and boost up their savings or increase their credit score, and those are all awesome goals. Financial coaching just helps you because I hold you accountable the entire way. Yeah, for better or worse, we're kind of like we're married. So if you want to take the podcast concepts that you're learning here and apply those to your life with my help, then you need to apply for coaching at WhitneyHanson.com slash customized dash coaching. Once again, that's WhitneyHanson.com slash customized dash coaching. I am so stoked to work with you and help you reach your financial goals. If you have been beating yourself up about your debt, or you have been considering making a career shift, but it seems really scary and you're like, I just don't know if this is a good idea, you're definitely going to want to tune into all of today's conversation. This is such a great conversation with Scarlett Cochran. If you haven't heard of Scarlett before, she's a lawyer, wealth expert, and founder of One Big Happy Life, where she empowers people to live a fulfilled and rich life while building wealth along the way. She's also the author of It's Not About the Money, A Proven Path to Building wealth your way while creating a rich life that you deserve. In today's conversation, we cover a lot of ground. We talk about why sometimes we need to stop focusing on these really arbitrary money roles that we always see on Instagram and TikTok, and you somehow, you know, create your entire life around these little roles. We talk about why that needs to maybe change a little bit. Defining what your version of a rich life is, Scarlett's experience serving in the Marine Corps around 9-11 and being a single mom. This is such a powerful little snippet of her story that I think is is really incredible. We talk about three core principles of your finances, consumption smoothing, and a different perspective on debt. This is the part where it's maybe towards the middle, towards the end. That's where you're really going to want to pay close attention if you've been beating yourself up with the amount of debt or the type of debt and just anything debt related. I think it's going to give you a really good perspective. We also dive into why we need to avoid complacency in our earning potential, letting go of identities and making career shifts and how these sometimes go hand in hand and Scarlett's business journey growing one big happy life. This was such a fun conversation. I know I definitely gained a lot of perspective and just some laughs and some really good ideas around approaching finances maybe a little bit differently. And I think you will too. Also, if you need any resources in the show notes, you're going to find a copy of Scarlett's book so you can know exactly where to go to to purchase one of those and also my Instagram handle so you can come say hey and I would love to connect with you. So let me go ahead and turn the mic over to my friend Scarlett Cochran. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I am so excited to be joined by a new author, Scarlett Cochran. Thank you so much for hanging out. Thanks for having me, Whitney. I am so excited that you wrote a book. Anybody that takes the time to put their ideas out on paper, it's just, it's so incredible to me. So tell us a little bit about 
what your book is and why you decided to write it now. So my book is called It's Not About the Money. And really what the book does is teach you how to define your vision of what a rich life looks like so that you can then use that vision as a tool for making financial decisions, for setting financial goals, and really for staying motivated towards reaching those goals. Because again, they're grounded in the vision of the life that you actually desire. And it's really taking people back to what money was originally for, which was to make life easier, to make transactions easier, to make it easier for us to have the things that we want in our lives. And I think that we've gone too far to the other direction where we focus on being good stewards of money when really we need to be focusing on how do we use our money for the lives that we want. So money should serve us, not the other way around. Why do you think so many of us kind of forget about that sometimes? Well, I think that we often get caught up in the tactics of money. So when we think about the how, how do we reach our our financial goals? How do we build the financial habits that align with the results that we want in our financial lives? We think, well, I've got to spend less, right? The issue is I need to be more frugal. And there are a lot of people out there who enjoy being frugal, who enjoy a lifestyle that doesn't require spending on extravagant experiences, and that's fine. But when that becomes the dominant narrative, when it becomes this one-size-fits-all narrative, then that makes people feel like they quote unquote, should be doing money a certain way. And also, I think in part, it's our modern sort of sound bitey type of culture, even and with social media moving faster and faster, the quick tips are what get attention. It's what gets the shares. And so then those become rules instead of ideas that you can consider and decide whether or not they fit with your vision for your financial life. Gosh, that's so true. I always think about the the 50, 30, 20 budget rule. And that's like such a prime example of that too, where for some people that could be great. And for others, like if you're trying to pay off debt or you're investing more or your housing expenses are just crazy, like most people's are today, that doesn't quite fit for you. But sometimes we beat ourselves up because we did hear that little sound bite. I think that's a really good point. Right. And that rule, it's what does... I always like to say that you don't pay for things in percentages of income, right? (laughs) Like what does 20% of your income invested, what does that actually tangibly mean for you? Mm. And what here's the other thing with these money rules is it's really easy to sell someone a money rule right now in the present because you're not going to be around 30 years from now when they have to live with the results of that rule. Oh, that is so true. Yeah. And so there, and so many people that I work with, they say to me, Hey, I'm saving 20% of my income. And I'm like, but what is that buying you? What lifestyle is that going to create for you? And they're like, I have no idea. And then I'm like, well, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have in retirement? And they're like, well, I have no idea. I'm like, well, that's a problem, (laughs) right? What are you working towards? You do not want to get spent all these years of your life just following an arbitrary rule only to find out when, you know, it's kind of on the late side that this wasn't enough to afford the quality of life that you want to have when you are ready to stop working. It's so true. And I think this goes beautifully into the concepts of your book. And I think that ties into this idea of the rich life. So I'm curious for you, what exactly is your version of a rich life? And I presume that's changed, but maybe what is that now? So for me now, time freedom is one of time freedom and convenience are incredibly important to me. Mm-hmm. Also experiences and not, I used to do a lot of budget travel. And these days I like to do not, I won't say luxury travel, but I like to be able to get like, say the genie plus passes at Disney totally. and the park hopper pass, um, the fast passes at universal, like things that help make the experience more enjoyable. And 
you know, when I was younger, I would be looking for a lot of the free things to do in a city. But now I look at what are all of the things to do in the city? What are the things that I want to do the most, regardless of what they cost? And then I build my budget around that. So for me, it's really thinking about the experiences, the memories that I want to have and who I want to have it with, which also means spending a lot of time with my family and my friends and cultivating those relationships, both the big moments like the big trips, but also the everyday small moments, having the time to savor dinner with my family and taking a walk in the middle of the day with my husband or being able to go have lunch with my son anytime that I want to have. Those those are the things that are really meaningful to me. And I think have, have really always been, those are the things that I've really strove, striven, strove for my entire life. I love that idea too of it allowing you to evolve instead mm-hmm. like having that that fluidity where you can say this is maybe at one time you probably well I know you had to be more frugal and focus on those those free moments and as income grows as we evolve you can start to enjoy your money. Did you ever feel I sometimes struggle with this. Sometimes I feel guilty. Like I lived on a budget for so dang long because I had to. And then now it's like I can actually spend money and I can enjoy it. But sometimes I feel a little guilty. Did you ever experience that? So I never have because in my mind, I have always had this vision of what my ideal life would look like and the things that I wanted to have in my ideal life. For me, where what has come up is really revisiting the why behind why I felt I needed certain things and realizing that although I do have the capacity to earn to the point where I could have those things, I actually don't care about those things anymore. Mm. So once upon a time, I thought that I wanted to have a luxury car, a BMW (laughs) specifically, in order to quote unquote feel successful. But as I've gotten older, I've realized I don't actually value having a BMW for the sake of having a BMW. There are actually other features about a car that are far more important to me. And so I don't actually see myself getting a BMW anytime soon. But no, I've never felt guilty about spending money. And I think that's that's really unusual. But for people who do feel guilty around spending money, it's like you have to ask yourself, why? What is the story that's coming up that's making you feel guilty mm-hmm. around spending money? And it's also not surprising that you have any guilt around spending money because, again, what we are taught is that we should always be looking for the cheapest way to spend the cheapest way to do anything. Because if we're not doing the cheapest, if we're not looking for coupons, then we are being wasteful with money. But in reality, yeah, what we should be asking ourselves is, what do I value? And then spending in alignment with our values and savoring those values, right? And savoring those expenses, the the spending. The worst thing to do is spend the money and then beat yourself up about it afterwards because now you don't have the money and you don't even have the enjoyment of the thing that you just bought. It's so true. I I can't help but just like nod along because that – that's exactly. And I know a lot of that goes back to even like my childhood. I grew up in a single mom household. We were broke, broke. Like we just didn't have a lot of money. And so that scarcity mindset, I'm in my thirties now and I still notice it, like it still sometimes creeps in. I would love to hear a little bit more about how money was talked about when maybe when you were a kid, like what was that narrative? Like when you were growing up? My parents didn't talk about money at all. I didn't get an allowance. I, yeah, we just didn't talk about money. So it just wasn't even on the table. Yeah. I mean, to the point where I graduated from high school and I joined the Marine Corps. So I became an active duty Marine. I started getting paid and I didn't know how to, how bank accounts worked, how check check books, like this was back in 2000 when people really used <laughs> totally. how checks books worked, how to balance my checking account. I didn't know any of that stuff. My parents taught me Nothing. I was just lucky that in the Marine Corps, when you go to boot camp, they walk you through the process of signing up for your a bank account so that they can pay you because you get paid in boot camp. That's the only reason why I had a bank account in order to get paid. So my parents taught me 
absolutely nothing about money, but thankfully I came of age in a time when the internet was actually useful, right? In the, in Mm. the 200s, you could Google things and find out the answers to your questions. And I also was just someone that was willing to go to a bank and ask the tellers there, okay, what is this? What does this mean? How does this work? And so what I did have was, I would say a, a quality education so that I felt comfortable asking questions, reasoning through things myself, and I felt comfortable with basic math. And that's mm. that was the gift that I got from my parents to help me with my finances. Which is like honestly the biggest gift because I think so often we we do complicate finances and we think you need to be able to calculate IRRs and all these like crazy interest rates and rate of returns. And realistically, it's like, can you use a calculator? Then you're probably going to be okay. And a lot of that comes down to, I like your point about spending within your values. So you were in the Marine Corps. How long did you serve? I served for four years from 2000 to 2004. So during the post 9-11 period. Yeah. Scary time. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the most vivid memories that I have in my life, the the towers and, mm-hmm. and you know, the attack on ni- on the day of 9-11, because like, just imagine being on mm-hmm. a military base. At that time, we didn't have any, re- there weren't really active military engagements at the time. I mean, there oh, were, okay. but we were not at war right. at that time. And we're talking before 2001. And so I just remember us all um at headquarters, standing around this little TV. We're all in uniform and we're watching the attacks happen. And it's just silence because we all know it's like, okay, we're going to war and some of us are going to die. And it was, it was just such a profound moment Mm. in my life. Um, that was scary at the time, but I'm glad to have experienced it and gone through it because I I think that it also really helped me appreciate my life because I felt my mortality and the fact that I may not actually have that much time left just based on the nature of the work that I was doing at the time. I thought it would be so scary and and how eerie to think about your your friends and yourself and like all of that stuff too. At that time, were were you a mom at that time too? I was pregnant. Uh, Let's see. So we're talking September um, 2001, and my daughter was born in March of 2002. So I was about three or four months pregnant at that time. And so that was an even scarier thing because I also knew that after giving birth to my daughter at any point in time, I could be deployed. And so then I would have to leave her. And I was a single mom. I knew I was going to be a single mom at that point. And so I had to come up with a plan, as all military members do, for what who will take your children if you end up getting deployed. Does the military assist with that very much? Like, do they have estate attorneys and just people that can can guide you? Um. So my thought is maybe, sure, yeah, <laughs> uh, because that sounds familiar that there are likely to be estate attorneys, but did I know anything about that at the time? Right. Absolutely Fair. not. I do know at that point I was trying to figure out how to file my own taxes <laughs> and the military <laughs> oh, yeah. helped with that. Yeah. So, but my guess is that there has to be some sort of resource. I just am not aware of it. No, I mean, yeah. that's fair because it, it sounds like you're pretty young too yeah, at that I time. Was that's like 19. Oh my gosh. Time, yeah. So I really wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that at all. I didn't think about an estate attorney until after I was already an attorney myself. That's actually Seriously. probably the first time that I ever thought about a will when I was in law school and trying to take wills, trusts, and estates, trying to take that class in law school and it not fitting into my schedule and feeling very upset about it because I knew it was a practical class that I would really want to take. That so I learned it later <laughs> to take the bar. Yeah. And you Got have to it. learn it to take the when you take the bar. So I learned it later. But yeah, I had never thought about having a will before that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think many 20 somethings do at all until they like maybe have a kid and they're like, Oh, should I think about this? Like this should maybe be a thing. It's, it's very fascinating. What was your draw to law school? Like what made you decide to go that route? Well, being the daughter of immigrant, immigrant parents, being an yes. immigrant myself, cause I came here when I was two years old, there are only two careers, <laughs> doctor or lawyer. Now I was yep. aware of 
two other careers, both of which my mom like basically nixed, which is like marine biologist and writer. My mom's like, those people don't make any money. Don't do that. You can be a doctor or a lawyer. So when I was thinking about, well, I've got this child to support, what career do I want to do next? Because I I knew that I didn't want to stay in the Marine Corps for multiple reasons. One, I like didn't really feel like my skill set was best suited for the military. Like I asked too many questions. I wanted to do things differently. (laughs) That is not the military way. Um, But also I, I wanted a different lifestyle and I wanted to be able to be there for my daughter. I didn't want to have a job that would require me to be gone for weeks and months at a time, Mm -hmm. having lived that experience for four years already. Mm -hmm. So I was just, after getting out of the Marine Corps, well, before I got out of the Marine Corps, I'm like, all right, well, which kind of job should I get, doctor or lawyer? And so I chose actually nurse anesthetist, to become a nurse anesthetist. because, Yeah, because I thought I would love to be a doctor, but I don't want to go through residency because they don't make enough money during residency. And I I don't want to wait that long to be able to afford a nice lifestyle for my child. Okay. Also thinking about this as like a single mom making $60,000 plus all the student loan debt, I didn't want to do that. And it's funny because I did end up doing that anyway, but as a lawyer working in public interest, but we can talk about that. <laughs> Beside the point. <laughs> yeah. And so I started my nursing degree And then they told me I would have to do clinicals where I would have to do rotations and clean up like vomit and poop and pee. And I'm like, I cannot with the human bodily fluid. So I guess it's going to have to be law school. (laughs) And so that's (laughs) that's it. And I was just, and then I Googled, you know, what major to get into law school. They said economics. That's what Google returned. I said, all right, that's my major. (laughs) And that was it. it. That's (laughs) so crazy. I love that so much that I don't blame you. My little sister's in med school right now and seeing the pathway. I'm like, dude, you're going to be broke for a while. Like it, it's a long haul. It, I mean, it really is. And of course it, it pays off on the back end, right? True. Which is the one, the thing that I didn't really have back then. It's like the perspective, the, mm. the taking that long view, because now on the tail end of it, I realized that I absolutely could have just gone to medical school and we would have been fine on the $60,000 a year, even with the student loans, because now I understand how student loans work and all of that. So those are just some of the limiting beliefs that I had. But look, it all worked out, right? It did. It did. It did. I think it's beautiful how life always does that. It's very interesting. Well, it does if you make it do that. Oh, good point. Like (laughs) if you stay committed to finding a path that works for you versus staying resigned to whatever is in front of you right now, especially allowing yourself to be limited by what you don't know. And that's one thing that I never did. I I never focused on what I didn't know. I always focused on my desires. What kind of outcome was it that I wanted to create? And then what's the next best step that I can take toward that outcome? And sure, my path meandered all over the place, but ultimately it's better to meander, but still eventually, but you're still kind of headed in the right direction than to head in the wrong direction and just keep going down that path. Yeah, it's true. I think sometimes that when you notice you're going down a path that maybe isn't right for you, it takes a lot of courage to get back onto that path. And sometimes we're we're complacent because it's comfortable. Like it's yes. really hard. And money plays into that so much, especially as you get into your 30s and you're more established in your career, you have kids, you have, um, you know, a house maybe by that point and, and things, and you're finally not struggling, right? You're now able to afford some of those luxuries that you used to think, wow, it'd be nice if I could have that. So you finally start to feel comfortable, but something's not working. Maybe you don't actually like this career, uh, this the career you've chosen or the job that you're in or the city that you're in or your kid's school, but mm-hmm. it feels really hard to let go of what you've worked so hard to accomplish and start from scratch. But it's so important to remember that you're never starting from scratch, you're bringing all of the experiences and skills that you didn't have before. You're actually able to get back to where you were before a lot faster and a lot easier because the first time you were figuring it out. Now you know how to do it. And so your result, you'll get faster results. So it's just 
reminding yourself of that and allowing yourself to believe that and trust in yourself and in your ability to not only get back to where you were before, but to make things so much better. Mm. I think that's really good advice for anybody too. And I'm, I'm thinking about young Scarlett being a single mom, trying to figure all this stuff out. What was your support system? Like I can imagine, I mean, I call my mom about 90 times a day and I don't have a kid to take care of and I don't have that pressure, but when you're doing that on your own, like what was your support structure like? Yeah, I didn't have one at all. Um, I didn't have the relationship with my mom to where I could call her all the time. It's funny because my daughter, Alexis, she is 20 now. She's about to turn 21 next month. And she, when she went away to college, she's already graduated from college, which is fun. Um, But when she went away to college, she was calling me all the time. (laughs) And I'm like, why is she calling all the time like this? Like, why is she doing this? Because I'm like, my parents never heard from me. They, I never asked them a question. Like I would call my mom periodically to say like, how do you cook this or that thing? Because I didn't Mm -hmm. really learn how to cook at home. That was the one thing my mom really did try to teach me. And I was not interested in learning. But (laughs) so I would call her, yeah, to ask her how to cook things. But I really couldn't turn to my parents for life advice. And we didn't live near each other. So my parents lived in New York City and I was stationed in Virginia. So, and again, we're not from the United States. So I don't have a large family here in the United States. There are very few of us in this country. So I had no one. And I just had to figure it out on my own. So I, you know what I did? I did what a lot of affluent people do, even though I was not affluent. I was making at that time $24,000 a year. Any support that I had, I bought. So that meant Mm. like childcare, for example. I had to go to work. Work was how I supported our family. So I had to find childcare that I could afford. So it's looking at what programs were available to me in the Marine Corps to help me pay that, what public assistance programs were available to me to help me afford the things that I needed. Like a simple thing, like back in 2000, before the Affordable Care Act, breast pumps were not covered by health insurance. And I couldn't afford to buy one. At least I didn't understand how to navigate my finance in finances in that way to be able to buy a a breast pump. But because I was making so little money, despite working full time as an active duty Marine, I was technically under the poverty line. So I qualified for some kinds of public assistance. I qualified for WIC and that gave me a manual breast pump, which allowed me to pump some milk during the workday. And so that was a resource. It was like figuring out, okay, what is out there that I can access? Because I don't have a safety net built in. I don't have a support system built in. So I've got to find whatever I can find to help me through this. I love that so much. At a certain point, you you kind of started to increase your income. You kind of grew out of that stage, which is so challenging. And I applaud your resourcefulness. I think that survival of just like, I have to figure it out is really powerful. And sometimes I feel like we, we almost lose that same feeling of survival as our income increases. How did you stay accountable to yourself and your own financial goals when you started to make more money? Well, I think for me, I am very, I've always been a bit of a planner. Um, nice. I look at my my son who he is seven years old and he, at the beginning of the week, just on his own, puts together what he calls clothing packets. So it's his underwear, his shirt, his pants, his what? socks for the whole week in bundles. Like, You're so he kidding. rolls them up together. I am dead serious. <laughs> and I'm like, that kid is a planner. He's actually asked for a, like a weekly calendar that's hourly so that he could plan what he wants to do during the hours. So, which is hilarious because he is a seven-year-old boy. Like you would not have expected that. (laughs) But I think he gets it from me because I have always been very meticulous about where I saw my life heading, including Mm -hmm. how I was going to increase my lifestyle. And that is also something that we're taught not to do. We're taught to avoid lifestyle inflation, but lifestyle inflation is not a problem if you're doing it purposefully. And if you're making sure that you're taking a holistic view of your finances, so you're balancing the, what I call the three core 
core purposes of money, something that I teach in the book, spending for joy, building your stability, and also growing your financial independence. So you balance those three. So when I got my first job out of law school, I was making $60,000 a year. I had $170,000 worth of student loan debt. I went to Yale Law School and I so was basically starting from scratch and then I got divorced. So I got married along the way and got divorced. So here I am, single mom again. And I just had this kind of long-term plan even before I went to law school. This is when this is how I'm going to repay my student loans. This is when I want to be able to buy a house. When I first get out of school, I must immediately start investing for retirement. I knew this because I had put it off until I finish school. And I'm like, you cannot put it off anymore. So you're going to start at this amount. You're going to get this number of raises every year. This percent of your raise will go towards that until you hit what I call your minimum investing rate. So the minimum amount you need to be investing in order to hit your financial independence number. And so it took me about five years to get to that number. And then I've just held fast to that number because I know exactly the lifestyle that I want to have in retirement. And so I know the amount that I need to put away for savings. So now beyond that, I'm like, okay, what else do I want to do today in my lifestyle? Mm. So that's how I've done it. Just very strategic that. like that. It's I, I like the the order of operations too. I like how your brain works where it's like, it's very structured. It's very like, do this, do this, do this, and trust that it will work. How I know most people generally struggle when it's like a long-term goal specifically we'll pick on the debt for a second because 170 yes i know for law school that's actually very normal but it feels like a lot if you have not gone to law school or med school or any of that stuff so when you hear that number they're like oh my gosh that's a lot of money it's going to take a long time to pay off how do you suggest people stay patient when that process feels like it's going to take a little bit of time so I am going to preface this by saying that this is a really controversial approach, but it really does work, which is to say, like, to not allow yourself to think that there's something wrong with spending your money in this way and to recognize that it doesn't matter how long it takes. Because, again, when you take the perspective of the long-term approach of your life, when you're on your deathbed and you're looking back on your life, will you care how long it took you to pay off debt? You won't, right? The things that you'll be looking at are, how did I spend my life? Who did I spend my life with? What kind of relationships did I build? What was my life's work? Mm. And so the money is just a means to an end. And I like to remind people that you get to decide how your money is best spent. Like we are fed this narrative that spending our money on interest is wrong. But why? Right. If the interest is buying us something that is more valuable, which typically for us is time, when we buy things now on credit, that means that we're not waiting using a year or two or three or five of our lives saving up and delaying getting the thing. Now, of course, you have to have a balance right? Everything in life requires balance. You can't have too much oxygen. You can't have too much water. You can't have too much food. Right. So you don't want to have too much debt either because that limits what you're able to do in other areas of your life. But if you look at debt as something that is a tool that you use responsibly that can help you really accomplish the things that you're trying to accomplish in your life in a way that's easier, that is uh, more flexible, then it becomes something that is just helpful. Right. Just another tool in your toolbox. And the other thing that I say to people when it comes to debt is I introduce this concept of consumption smoothing, which is an economic concept. And the idea behind that is to maximize our money and our enjoyment out of money. We want to have the highest lifestyle possible for the longest amount of time possible. But what happens is our earnings don't work that way. Typically, in the beginning, we have our lowest earnings and then they ramp up. And so it really makes sense just from a, just the way money works, the way our life cycle works, as long as, again, you're taking a very balanced approach to this, that you leverage some of your future earnings to build up your lifestyle now so that you can enjoy your present as well as your future. That's such a unique take. You are correct. I have not heard anybody articulate it quite that way. And so I, I really do appreciate 
where you are coming from with that. I think it's really interesting and it's definitely something that I agree with. I mean, I, I think you're smart on, you know, of course, be diligent about it. Don't go overboard. Don't, you know, don't be an idiot about it, but don't also beat yourself up over that either. I think that's a really, it's a nice little sigh of relief when you hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And here's the other thing. I think debt is the, uh, first of all, like the modern, the adult boogeyman. If you look, it pay is. attention to television, to movies, everything you watch, debt comes somewhere and it's like, oh, I'm so scared. My debt is horrible. It's like the easy scapegoat. But in reality, and, and what that does is, it's also really a very common and I would say largely inescapable part of modern life, unless you come from a family of means. If you come from a family of means, so for example, my daughter, I did put her through college. She has no no student loans. She has no car payment. She got a brand new car, no car payment. When the time comes for her to have a wedding, we have the financial means to pay more than the average cost of a wedding as part, I want her to contribute as well. And she did contribute to her own, like, education don't so don't get me wrong but those are the advantages that millions of people have i didn't have those advantages so how was i going to do those things for myself right i either was going to have to do without them so not have those things in my life so spend many many years of my life which i partially did i gave up 4 years of my life in the marine corps to try to get money for college four precious years of my life right and so when you think about the fact that for many of us who are trying to catch up and keep up, debt gives us the leverage that we need to make the leaps. Like my first computer that I bought to take classes online while I was still working full-time during the day, I would take classes at night online. Amazing. I had to finance it or else I would have had to spend a year saving up. So a year of not taking classes, of not growing my income just so that I could avoid debt. Why? Mm-hmm, totally. I and I always believe, yeah, that you can you can increase your income, right? And that's the other thing. Personal finance, we talk about incomes like they're stagnant and they're fixed. And look, growing your income is not a simple thing. It's not something that just happens to you. You have to make it happen. We see that middle class, the middle class is falling behind, right? But I do believe that it's because we are not taught that we must actively and consciously work to grow our skills and those skills, including job searching skills and mm-hmm. negotiation skills and our skills in our job. It's not our employer's responsibility to provide us the skills to continue to grow. It's our responsibility to seek those out for ourselves and not get complacent so that we can continue to grow our income. I do believe that that is a better approach. That's a better place for us to focus than just beating ourselves up over debt. But lastly, and I would say about this is it's never a debt problem. It's always either an earning problem or a spending problem. And if we just focus on debt, then we're looking at a symptom, but we're not actually diagnosing what is the true issue, which means that it's going to, someone's going to keep repeating the cycle unless they learn to pay attention to their spending, unless they learn to grow their income so that their income can actually comfortably cover their spending habits. They're going to keep having the same problem. I love this this idea. I think this is very it's very smart to not only focus on just the number of debt. It's important to look at the holistic situation. Is it an income? Is it an earning issue? Is it a spending problem? Is it maybe both? Like what's going on there? I think that's really a good way to go. With your book, do you how much detail do you give us on like optimizing our income and really like actively increasing that? Yeah, so we do talk about calculating your ideal income. And also we talk about cash flow and how to create what I call a one-year spending plan where it's basically you're budgeting for the entire year at once so that you can kind of forecast what your finances are going to look like and you can build in the things that you want to do that year. But even before that, I spend a lot of time walking people through the process of even thinking about what does their ideal life look like? It's like when we're kids, we're asked all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you could be anything. And suddenly you make that decision and then you stop asking yourself the question. When in reality, I think you should continue to ask 
yourself that question for your entire life because you're going to continue to grow and change. And so what limits us is that we tend to focus in personal finance on how much we're making now. We don't think about what's possible for our future and how much that can change in one year, two years, three years, really seven years. Let's say you already went to, uh, you already have an undergraduate degree. Well, in eight years, you could be a doctor, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Eight years, you could be a doctor, like out of residency. And now you're making multiple six figures as a doctor. So So any you're 40 years old, by 50, you could be a doctor and you could spend 20 years as a doctor. But we don't think about it that way. No, we don't. I I think it's like, we have this narrative too in our society. I don't know if this is outside of America, but it feels like it's very prevalent here where at 40 to 45, we just immediately assume, oh, okay, I'm I'm done. I can't do any career shifts. Like I just got to, you know, I'm closer to retirement. And it's such a, it's such a sad way to live your life where it's like you have, I mean, say you live 78 as I think the average lifespan for Americans. It's like, you still have a ton of time, man. Like you have a ton, but yet we like immediately shut down from having those different opportunities. Yeah. I I mean, it was, I faced that myself when I decided to stop being a practicing attorney. So I was a banking and finance attorney for 10 years and then I became an entrepreneur. I started my company, One Big Happy Life, and it was, I had to make this decision. I mean, my career was going great. Right. And I also loved the work that I was doing. And of course there's the sunk cost of, well, I spent all those years getting this law degree and all this money getting this law degree. And also so much of my identity was wrapped up in, well, I'm successful now because I'm a lawyer. And Mm -hmm. now like, how do I let that go? How do I start over? How do I step into that uncertainty and do this entrepreneurship thing? And For me, one of the things that has always grounded me, and I'm so thankful that I became a single mom. Well, not, I don't know necessarily a single mom. I mean, I love my husband now. So yeah, it worked out fine. (laughs) But like certainly a mom, because I had that thought in my head very early on about wanting to be an example of what's possible for my daughter. And when I started to have that fear around, oh, well, can I actually do this other thing? I thought to myself, well, first of all, for myself, how would I feel if I didn't even give this a try? I'm still a lawyer. I can always go back to being a lawyer if I find that that's actually the better path for me. But won't I regret not giving this a real shot? And the answer was yes. And then secondly, like, how cool would it be for my daughter who went to law school classes with me, watched me get my law degree, crossed my the graduation stage with me getting my Juris Doctor, to then also watch her mom continue to follow her dreams and not let the fact that she is a mom, that she's supposed to be like settled now. She's a lawyer. She's a professional. (laughs) Stop her from running off and living her dreams. And that's exactly what I did. So now my daughter gets to do cool things with me, like um, because she works for me now that we are going on Good Morning America next week. And so she's she's coming with me and we're going to be there. Not her. It'll be me, but she's there as my team member. So so cool. Yeah. Living the, the example that I want to set for her. I love that so much. So with your with your entrepreneurial journey, I tell you, starting a business like brings up all the crap you didn't know you had. <laughs> so that's what it's like. It all comes out. You're like, oh, insecurity, self-doubt, um, fears, excitement, like all of those things just like really come out. Um, what what was your entry point to starting your business? Like, why did you decide to do that? Honestly, not on purpose. I'm one of those accidental entrepreneurs. So it back in 2013, I started a blog. It was called One Big Happy Blog. Yeah. <laughs> and because I was interested in like DIY home decor, not because I was thinking about it would be something that would make money, but I've always loved home ownership. I've always loved DIY home projects. And so I loved looking at other people's DIY projects and getting inspired. So I started to do that. And at the same time, my daughter was in middle school and struggling with having curly hair. We lived in Texas. Mm -hmm. Everyone else had straight hair. And so she wanted to wear her hair straight. And of course, I'm telling her, you know, sweetie, your hair is beautiful. Like, it's so unique. And she's like, but mom, you 
you wear your curly hair straight, which is true. I had relaxed my hair basically my whole life because my mm-hmm. mom did it when I was six and I just kept it up. Sure. And so I decided to go natural and wear my curly hair, which meant I had to cut off all of my hair and have short curly hair for the first time in my life. So I started looking at YouTube, say, okay, how do I go natural? There And there was this whole community, this the natural hair community about transitioning from relaxed to natural. How do you care for your natural hair? How do you make a TWA, which is a teeny weeny Afro look cute, <laughs> you I know, when you're it. used to having longer hair. And so eventually I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I grew my hair out to about an inch. And then Alexis and I cut my hair off. And I said, you know what, let's do a YouTube video of cutting my hair off to inspire other people. So it's it just so paying cool. it forward. And then I, so I put it up on YouTube and I just forgot about it. And fast forward three years later, I was actually in a job that I hated. It was supposed to be this like mommy track job that was only like a 20 minute commute from my house. And it turned into this travel job with nightmare bosses. So I was immediately looking for a new job. I'm like, I am not staying here a year. I am immediately finding another job. (laughs) And so in the meantime, Joseph, my husband was like, look, you need to do something to take your mind off of this. Cause I was miserable. I was spending, eating Mm -hmm. out. I have like, I emotionally eat. So I was like, we We got to eat out all the time, which was (laughs) busting our budget because we were not budgeting for $3,000 eating out a month, right? <laughs> totally. Like it yeah. was, we were just racking up $3,000 of credit card debt every yeah. month eating out. And so then I just randomly got this $100 check in the mail from YouTube because that hair video had been sitting there amassing views over the three years and it it finally met the payment threshold. So I'm oh like, gosh. well, I'll just do this YouTube thing. So if you go to the One Big Happy Life YouTube channel, you see videos, my earliest videos. So I've got some hair tutorials on there, but also my job search because that's how I was like this job. I hate it. I'm like, I don't even care if they find my YouTube videos. I don't care. So I'm job hunting on that exact YouTube channel. And I ended up getting my dream job, which is working as a policy attorney for the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And I just kept up the YouTube channel. I did, though, have to balance the ethical requirements of my job because I regulate at the time I was regulating the financial industry. So I couldn't Mm. work with any of the big banks because, you know, look, I regulate them. And I also couldn't even really talk about them that much because I had information about them that, you know, people out in the public would not normally have. So I just had to be really cautious. But my boss and even the head of the CFPB at the time were super supportive. So I did a spread for Oprah Magazine in, I think it was April of 2018, maybe. And they actually, the director of the CFPB held it up during an all hands. and was like, oh, Oh, I'm like, I'm like, please don't do that though, but don't (laughs) do that. (laughs) You know, I just know that a lot of people are afraid of doing something that they're passionate about because of what their colleagues might think. And look, that could be a real thing. Your job might not like that you're moonlighting and doing this other stuff. So be cautious about that, but don't let what other people think stop you from doing what you really want to do. I love that it all started with a hundred dollar YouTube check where you're like, damn, there's something here. Yeah. I I mean, and even still, I was not expecting it to be a full-time thing. I thought it would be a side hustle. I thought it would be a great way to pay, help pay some of my daughter's college expenses. I'm like, look, Mm -hmm. if in five years, this thing is making $2,000 a month, that's $2,000 in college tuition that I don't have to like like pay, right? That's true. easier for me to pay. And, but here's what I realized that I know everybody loves talking about side hustling, but side hustles are not sustainable long-term. Like you're just going to, you're going to burn out. And so I reached the point where I'm like, this is taking away so much time from my family, which I mentioned before, family is something that I value. And so something's got to give. Either the job has to go or the business has to go. And I made the decision that I wanted to focus on the business. It's something that I was passionate about pursuing. And so I said goodbye to my job and I went all in on the business. That's incredible. How, How long into juggling both before you had to make that decision? It took me three years because 
I wasn't initially trying to, I wasn't treating it as a business. So the first year, it was just kind of this thing that I was doing that was kind of fun. And I made, I think, $5,000 even still, which was, you know, pretty cool. But then you end up pouring so much money into learning more about online business and getting all the stuff. So then the second year, I made $76,000 or somewhere around there, maybe $86,000. It's a huge jump. Yeah. And because the second year, I'm like, okay, I made some money. Now let's try to make some real money. Like, let's make this work. And so- We got, it got up to 86 and then, but then I was like, you know what? That was a lot of work for $86,000. Now, again, as a lawyer, that's a different perspective, right? I'm sure a lot of people out there would be like, you didn't work nearly hard enough for that (laughs) 86,000. But for, to me, it felt like if I was doing something for the sake of making money and something that I enjoyed, I already have a skill that I really enjoy, that I really am passionate about where I could make $86,000 a lot easier than Mm. this. And so the third year, which was 2019, I'm like, all right, this, it's got to be enough to pay me my lawyer salary or else it's, it's got to go. And like halfway through the year, I'd made multiple six figures. And then I'm like, okay, this, this will work. I can quit my job. And then the pandemic happened in 2020. I was like, okay, all right, life. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) How did the, did the pandemic affect your business much? I mean, it really, it really did. Um, Honestly, so I quit my job in April of 2019, and then I lost my childcare in November of 2019. And so what I really was, was suddenly, for the first time in my life, a full-time stay-at-home mom also trying to run a business. And so that's why I tell people that actually, I don't believe that that's possible. You're either, you're neglecting something, you're either neglecting your child or you're neglecting your business. So I was waiting for January to come around because we got new childcare and I'm like, all right, 2020, I'm going to hit the ground running. And then the pandemic happened and the whole world was going crazy. And then, of course, we had, you know, George Floyd and, you know, the and so that took like a mental toll on me. And so although 2020 was still a year of growth for us for the first half of the year, I was like floundering. I'm like, I don't know that my business is going to actually survive. Like the first quarter of 2020, like first half, I had made less money. Like I was, I was feeling like I was back in my first year again. I'm like, can I pull this around? But that's the beautiful thing about business. The ebb, it it ebbs and flows. And when it ebbs, it can really ebb, but when it flows, it can really flow and it can all happen in the same year. So Mm -hmm. 2020 ended up being one of our biggest years of growth. Um, but f- in the first half of the year, it did not feel like it. So trust me when I tell I was one of those business owners that I was like, what's this PPP loan thing? No, <laughs> How do we get though. this? <laughs> okay. Yes. Because I don't know. I, this might be the only way that my business stays afloat this year. Yeah. So it was a scary time. I feel that yeah. I was uh, as a financial coach and podcast host, like you rely on sponsors, you rely on coaching clients and leads. And when that stuff happens, people just they're holding tight to their wallets and I get it, but man, it is scary sometimes. I mean, everyone is. And so even for me, for me to do the transition, I focused on selling my own products and services because Mm. I felt that was a more consistent income than focusing on brand partnerships. I love brand partnerships, but it's really like whim and luck if you happen to land one and I needed something more consistent. But it's also true that in the midst of a pandemic, especially in the beginning, people were not spending as much. So we were making fewer sales of our products and services. And so that's the, the challenge where it's not always the financial cycles and people's sentiment. It's not it's never in anyone's control, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're thinking about your own personal finances and you're looking at the stock stock market go up and down. But you have to keep coming back to the thought that, that you're going to figure it out, that that is your only option, right? Like those things are not in your control. What you do have control of is how you keep showing up. And if you keep working at it, I guarantee you that you're going to be in a far better position than if you just sat out, just sat out and just kind of floated along wherever the current wants to carry you. It's so true. And like what a, it's a much more empowering sentiment to be able to feel like you have some control in an uncontrollable situation. It's like, all right, I can, I can do a couple things to help my destiny. I'm not just going to sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch Emily in Paris, even though that sounds great, but it, it just gives you a little bit more appreciation for you have some power. 
Yeah. And, and maybe you can do both. This is the other thing. It's not all or nothing. Fair. But let's also be real about like, okay, you can watch one hour. You can have one hour of popcorn <laughs> right. and Emily in Paris, Thank but the you. next hour you need to do something else, right? Spend yeah. an hour on YouTube or or listening to a podcast that can help you grow, that can help you stimulate ideas for what your next best step is. Oh, so true. I love that. That's really good advice too. And, and again, that sigh of relief, it, it gives us a little bit of that pressure uh, relieved. So you feel like, okay, I can still be a normal human. I could still enjoy some free time and and still hustle and make some progress on my business. I think that's really yeah. great. I think I call it the bare minimum approach. I feel like I'm a very much a bare <laughs> minimum approach. Like what's the bare minimum that I can yes. do here to be successful? Right? I love that so much. And so yes. it's like, because people think they have to do all the things. They have to right. do everything. No, just do the bare minimum Right. Because that's where you are right now. Over time, your bare minimum is going to change because you just get better and better at it. And so you just can't help but be successful as long as you set the floor of mm-hmm. your life to where it will help you get incrementally better versus setting a floor that's getting you nowhere. Good point. I love that so much. In respect for your time, I want to talk a little bit more about where people can go for the book, which I'm so excited for people to get their hands. And I think it's going to help a lot of people change their lives. So where's the best place to get a copy of the book? So I would say best place to go, onebighappylife.com forward slash book. So I have a list of booksellers, both local to the U.S. and international and indie bookstores, plus the big ones like Amazon and Target. So you can use any of those links. But more importantly, once you buy the book, make sure you come back to onebighappylife.com forward slash book because I created a suite of free resources that go along with the book that make it so much easier for you to implement everything that you are going to learn. Nice. I appreciate you taking that extra step too. That's all right, friend. Before we officially part ways, are you down for some rapid fires? Yes. All right, let's do it. Okay. I'm obsessed with people's morning routines. I just find them so interesting. So what is your current morning routine? Oh my gosh. So right now I'm just... I am. I have a bad morning routine, meaning that <laughs> I sleep in as late as I want to, and I wake up when Joseph comes in and brings me a cappuccino from our new, what are they called, super automatic espresso machine that's like a one-press grind and brew and milk froth what? thing. So that's my morning routine. <laughs> that is like perfect. I'm going to send this to Tony, my partner, and be like, hey, man, <laughs> you hear this morning routine? This would be perfect for me, too. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. My next question for you is what is one book you find yourself gifting to others most often? Uh, I would say probably Principles by Ray Dalio. It's it's a thick one, but I love this idea of having these grounding principles that support your ideal life. And so many of his principles align with my own, like especially this idea of um, constantly improving and questioning yourself and versus taking things for granted and thinking that you know everything. Mm, that is a really good book. I'd need to go revisit that one. The next question I have for you is where is one location you're dying to travel to? I want to go back to Singapore. I know it's kind of boring to go back to where you've gone before, but places I've never been, I'm going to say Australia, but I love Singapore. Of all the countries that I've visited, it's my absolute favorite. There's so much to do. It's so, it's just so much fun. I love it. How long would you spend there? I would spend a week and not what I did before, which is plan a week vacation, but you actually spend two and a half days like traveling. No, I would travel and be there for a whole week because also the jet lag, because it's a full 12 hour difference was horrendous for me. So by the fifth day, I couldn't even stay awake anymore. So yeah, a full week. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Noted. All right. My last question for you, in your opinion, what is the secret to financial success? Gosh, the secret is that it's something that continually takes work. I think that people have this thought that some t- at some point they'll reach this point where they won't have to think about money again. And 
to me, that's setting yourself up for failure. That should never be the thing that you aspire to because it is an impossible standard. No one should not be thinking about their money. I don't care how rich you are. If you're super rich, you need to know what the people that you're paying t- is are doing with your money. You still need to understand it. So understanding that understanding money is, should be part of just how you live your life because those skills do atrophy over time. You will lose them if you don't use them and you're old and you're vulnerable and people will take advantage of that. So just step into this idea that managing your finances is like brushing your teeth. It's something that you routinely do on a regular basis. It doesn't have to take a lot of time and it's essential. Oh, I love that. What a beautiful way to wrap up the conversation. Scarlett, thank you so much for your time. I had so much fun learning from you. Thank you for having me. This has been a really great conversation. All right. What'd you think? Tell me, tell me all the things. I enjoyed this conversation so much. I also really like Scarlett's bare minimum approach. I feel like I've been doing that a lot more in my life too. And I think it can definitely work. So give it a shot if you haven't currently been utilizing that. I would love to hear from you. Do me the biggest favor, leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player that you are listening on. That's like the greatest thing you can do for podcast hosts. We see those and that just totally makes us feel like all of the work that we do here is worth it. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds Podcast. Bye. say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.